the Business and Leadership Podcast with Jared Graybeal. Hey guys, welcome back to the Business and Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Jared Graybeal. And on today's episode, I have special guest Mike Begg. Uh, Mike is an e-commerce entrepreneur, and he's the co-founder of a digital marketing agency uh, called AMZ Advisors that focuses primarily on the Amazon platform. Also, recently, they've launched AMZ Courses, which is basically the fundamentals of selling on Amazon. He made the jump to start his own business and get into e-commerce while he was working in real estate for Sears, and he could see the writing on the wall. Um, At the same time, Amazon was in its ascendancy, and he saw a huge opportunity to build a business around it. Um, So we're going to learn a lot today about e-commerce. We're going to learn about the Amazon platform, specifically retail, real estate, uh, and some words like nearshoring and probably hear the word arbitrage too many times on this call. But stick around because we're going to elaborate on what all this means. Mike, thanks for being on the show today. Jared, thank you for having me here. I'm excited to be here and share my experience and my knowledge with your audience. And also, thank you for that awesome intro. That that was great right there. You really explained my background well. Glad to have you, and uh, and like I mentioned, I'm I love I love interviewing. It's something that I've loved for a long time, and especially with um, podcasts kind of on the rise over the past five years, I've had a lot of great opportunities to learn from people. But selfishly, this one I sort of have an agenda because, like I mentioned before, we started recording. Um, I'm launching my own product, the Self Help Journal, which will be on Amazon, and it's already on Etsy, but. Um, so I'm excited to learn a lot about this. And I say that because I want to give context for the audience that as you listen to this show, or even as you listen to the intro, I know how I am with podcasts. And if I listen to an intro and I'm like, oh, that doesn't really serve me, I'll jump to the next episode. So if you're not thinking about going full-time into selling on Amazon, like stick around because I think this is something, and you might agree, this is something that people can do as a side hustle. They can create a one-off product and sell it for fun and make some, like the self-help journal is not my long-term full-time job. It's a project I worked on that I'm going to uh, monetize and reach people but make some money, you know? Um, So stick around on the show, even if you don't want to get heavily into e-commerce or or whatever all those words mean to you, because you're going to learn a lot and you're probably going to find an opportunity in this episode. I think we're going to learn a lot from Mike. Um, So once again, thanks for being on, Mike. I want to kind of dive right in to the story. I know that you're working in real estate at Sears some time ago. And um, I know that you started AMZ, uh, well, you started selling in 2014. And then towards the end of 2015, you started AMZ Advisors. Am I right? Yeah, that's uh, more or less the timeline that we had. Yeah. Okay. So I want to hear more about your story from, you know, selling. I think there was some eBooks involved um, to the retail arbitrage and then going into private labels and all that stuff. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah. So uh, I think you you mentioned it a little bit. You know, I was working in retail, but on the real estate side. And at that time, I was working for Sears, and you know, Sears wasn't doing that great as a company. Uh, you know, they were struggling to get people in the stores. We saw more and more people were shopping online. And to me, that was kind of the evidence that I needed to look into the online and e-commerce space more because I, I really didn't know enough about it. And, you know, I had two other business partners, I actually had three other business partners. We were all working in corporate jobs. We were looking to get into something new, you know, be able to support ourselves, have our own business. And what we started doing was selling eBooks on the Kindle platform. 
uh, which is pretty straightforward. I mean, you, you just put a book up, you put the content together, you get a royalty on it, you know, depending on how many of your sales you get. And the great thing is, I mean, it's, it's a royalty, so it's, it's ongoing forever. I mean, we still get royalties from books we published in 2014. So that was our first foray into e-commerce. Uh, then from there, we started learning about retail arbitrage, as you mentioned it, which is essentially you know, going to your local Walmart or your Target and buying whatever's on discount and then reselling it online, whether it be eBay, Amazon, uh, you know, whatever platform you choose. We started making money that way. We, you know, we started realizing the potential in physical products. And then we started moving to our own private labels, which is where we started importing products from China uh, and Asia. And then, you know, putting our own brand on it, labeling it, selling it on the Amazon platform. And we saw that we were competing and stealing sales from a lot of big household name brands that were out there. And that's where we came up with the idea for the agency to help a lot of these other brands out there maximize their Amazon sales because really they weren't doing enough. Right. Uh, and yeah, since then, we've been doing that since uh, 2015, as you said. So it's been a long road. That's awesome. And uh, that's around the same time I started my business. So I know like the, the landscape and the trajectory has dramatically changed over the past five years. Like if you saw the writing on the wall in 14, then you definitely see it now. Um, <laughs> Yeah. especially after a year like this year, right? Where uh, the volatility and in commercial real estate, in restaurants, food, right? It's a lot has geared and shifted towards e-commerce, even if it's not a product, even food, right? You've got ghost yeah. kitchens and everything else that are blowing up right now. Um, and for the audience, I just want to rewind for a second. This word arbitrage gets thrown a lot, around a lot in the the seller space, I think, like the Gary V's of the world, right? Yeah. Um, arbitrage is just a, a kind of a fancy word for flipping. Would Would you agree? Yeah, it's to me, it's taking advantage of uh, of well, I mean, literally the trend, the definition I think is taking advantage of an inefficiency in the market. But yeah, flipping is one aspect of it. Finding something that's undervalued in one place and finding where the demand's higher for it. Got or, it. you know, the price is lower. I mean, yeah, taking advantage of something that, uh, you know, is inefficient, I yeah. guess is the way I would put it. That others aren't taking advantage of. Okay. Thank you for clearing that up because we could probably say that word a lot and then somebody's going to not know what it means and they're not going to want to look it up on the dictionary. Um, so let's talk about some of the challenges that have taken place as you've dove into this world of entrepreneurship from working for, at the time, a, you know, a big big brand, big company like Sears. Um, what are some of the things that you've ran into and how did you overcome them? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's always going to be new challenges, new failures, new obstacles that come up in any business venture you're going to take. I mean, as I mentioned before, originally when we were starting these brands and starting to grow our businesses, we had another business partner. We had, you know, four of us in total right now it's, it's three. And, you know, one of the obstacles we ran into is that we just made a mistake in, you know, the partner that we had in the business with us. Uh, you know, it's difficult too, because he was a friend as well. He just, you know, was focused on other things. He didn't have the same ideas, didn't have the same goals. And yeah, I mean, getting so hyped up on the idea of starting your own business, you know, selling your own products, having your own brand, whatever it may be, is great at the time, but it's more than just that hype. You actually need to put in the work. Uh, you need to put in the effort, you need to put in the time. And, you know, we just saw in those first brands that we were selling that, you know, we were doing more of the work. He wasn't as interested in it or didn't really know what to do. Uh, and part of that's just us not knowing as much about at the time as we know now. 
But yeah, I mean, making the wrong decision with who you're partnering on a business can be one big thing that can determine the trajectory of your business. I mean, if you're not both aligned on the end goals, or if you have more than one partner, if you're not all aligned on the end goals, then it's going to be difficult to grow that business over time. I think that's probably one of the largest obstacles we've uh, ran into. Another big obstacle that we see a lot is just hiring the wrong people, which is a similar problem. You know, we've made a lot of great hires, and I, I know we're going to talk more about it later. Uh, here in Mexico, which is where I live, uh, we have a team of about 16 people. And you know, a lot of the employees we've hired here have been better than employees that we've had in the U.S. We've actually you know, gotten rid of employees in the U.S. that just weren't as good. Um, you know, we tried to find shortcuts, whether it be you know, paying, let, you know, paying people less in the U.S., uh, finding people cheap, finding people that we thought could manage everything themselves. But at the end of the day, it's the wrong hire. And if you make the wrong hire, just like if you have the wrong partner, that's going to affect how quickly your business can grow. And, you know, it's going to affect where that business is actually going to get to in the long run. So those are probably two of the biggest lessons I've learned from, uh, you know, running a business myself. And yeah, I mean, that may, when you are aligned on the same goals, when you have the people in your organization that are aligned on the same goals, the results you're going to get are going to be a lot better. So what advice would you give the audience? Um, Maybe there's some people listening that have a friend or two that they're thinking about starting a business. Um, How would you help them decide, like, you know, maybe that is or is not the person to partner with? You mentioned goals aligned and stuff, but I think a lot of times when people go to start a business, they're more or less uh, interested in capitalization and the hype. And they're usually not setting missions and values right away. So what would be your advice? It's it's a tough one. I mean, any business you deal with a friend is going to be difficult. Luckily, my two partners I have now, we are incredibly honest with each other. We can, you know, get to the point where we're swearing, fighting, not care. And like, we're just saying how we feel. And we know that it's being honest. Um, I think that radical transparency like that and radical honesty is going to be one of the biggest things. If, if you have a friend that, you know, you don't really have that with now, uh, it's probably not going to be someone you want to partner with in the future. Um, but yeah, honestly, transparency is, is a huge part of selecting the right business partner and having the right goals. I mean, yeah, goal alignment is one aspect of it. Um, but it's also when it, more than just financial goals. It's, it's, you know, what kind of lifestyle do I want from this business? You know, how much time do I have to dedicate to this business? Is this just going to be a side hustle to make some extra money? Or is this going to be something that, you know, we're going to burn the ships on and go all in, you know, leave our corporate jobs, leave our, our main jobs right now and you know, just try to grow this as much as possible. Uh, you know, just, I, I would say being on the same page, at least from that perspective is more important than, um, you know, thinking about how much money you're going to make, um, you know, what, how you're going to split profits, things like that. I would focus more on making sure that they want something similar to you. Um, and not just in the money sense, like time-wise, uh, you know, value creation-wise, life lifestyle-wise, all of that's super important. I agree. So let's let's dive into the more um, operational side of things. And like I mentioned from the intro, we've we've got a gamut of topics. I think that all are really commingled, like <laughs> real estate and retail, e-commerce, um, and you mentioned it, but nearshoring. Um, I kind of want to dive into nearshoring. Let's let's start there. How did you decide to open an office abroad, or like why? What brought you to opening an office in Mexico, and what was that process like? 
Well, it all goes back to when we were really starting the business. Uh, you know, my friends and I, or my partners and I, I should say partners, they are my friends as well. You know, we were, we're all from Connecticut originally. We were kind of tired of being in Connecticut. You know, we saw a lot of people were traveling, running businesses remotely. Uh, and we were like, oh man, that'd be awesome to be living on the beach, running a business. So when we were starting this and kind of you know, really starting to push it. We had left our jobs. We were looking to save as much money as possible. Originally, we moved down to uh, you know South Carolina, where one of my uh, business partner's parents had a house. We were living there for free. You know, then we moved somewhere in Florida for a little while to try to save some money where it was cheap. Then we actually ended up moving to Mexico uh, on, I think it was New Year's Day, twenty seventeen. Uh, we moved down to Mexico to Playa del Carmen. We started growing the business there. It allowed us to keep our costs low uh, when it came to you know, renting an apartment, food, all those expenses that would have been a lot more difficult in the U.S. And you know, as the business started gaining more traction, uh, you know, we went and traveled more, went to other places. I ended up here in Guadalajara, which is where I live now. This is where I met my girlfriend. Uh, I ended up staying here, and then as the business continued to to grow, we realized that we needed people uh, inside our business that weren't freelancers in the Philippines, that weren't uh, you know, India, whatever other country it may be. So we opened up an office here and now we've grown that office up to 16 people here in Mexico. So that's over pretty much three years. So you know, nearshoring is a great opportunity because obviously the cost savings is massive, but the fact that we were able to get people into an office in a single location where the cost savings were awesome, where the people were highly qualified, where they had great English language skills, all that really created a you know, great combination for us to grow our business a lot more. And you know, we're big proponents of nearshoring. We believe in it a lot. And we think there's a lot of other opportunities for other businesses to implement the same thing you know, for themselves. Can you define nearshoring? Sure. So essentially when we think of you know, there's a lot, this is thrown around a lot in, uh, I guess, in conversations about the government and, you know, policies, laws, things like that. Offshoring is typically considered sending uh, jobs and, you know, money, capital overseas to China, to India, the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam. You know, there's a lot of different places. And that's also done for manufacturing, not just for the service industry. So that's considered offshoring is when you're sending it far. Nearshoring is essentially using countries that are closer to the U.S. So Mexico is one good example. Central America, uh, South America is typically considered nearshoring. Um, and it's essentially just hiring employees that are closer to you that are in the same time zone. Um, for us, I mean, it's important that they have similar business uh, work ethic, which is great about Mexico. Um, and yeah, it's really just hiring people that are closer to home. Um, so, you know, we're still bringing jobs outside of the country. It's just that, you know, we don't have to wait until our team wakes up in India, you know, yeah. our team in Mexico is working the same hours as us. So it's a lot more convenient. There's a lot more, uh, collaboration that we're able to get done there and we're not able to achieve a lot more. That's awesome, man. Now you've sort of shined a light on you know, a lot of the benefits of nearshoring and even you and your team moving to Mexico yourselves. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say are the challenges or some of the adversity that you've had to face or that everyone probably will have to face? The biggest challenges that you're going to run into are going to be just legal obstacles. Um, you know, you're, you're operating in another country. You don't, that speaks another language, <laughs> I might add. 
so it's difficult to get your, your head around a lot of the legal concepts, the accounting, uh, you know, employee contracts. So part of the problem is having the right partner in uh, the country, wherever it may be that you plan on uh, launching. So you can understand the rules so they can handle a lot of those aspects for you. That's probably the biggest challenge. Uh, but another big challenge is actually uh, sending money offshore. Uh, the U.S. makes that pretty difficult, and I think most countries do as well. There's a lot of great platforms out there like TransferWise, um, but we actually ended up getting kicked off a few platforms because of the amount of money that we were sending to Mexico. So, you know, dealing with the actual payroll aspects of it are a lot easier if you have a business in the country and versus just sending money to like a freelancer or, you know, uh, they might be an employee, but you don't have a, a real business down there. They're working at will. Um, that's another big challenge of nearshoring. So, you know, when it comes to the legal and operational aspects of it, those are the, the biggest things you will face when you're doing it. Did you have to, how did you overcome that? I don't can you elaborate on that? Of course. Uh, so luckily, we weren't the only ones that were thinking this. Uh, I have another friend down here in Guadalajara who, uh, he's American as well. He's from uh, Arizona. And he had the same obstacles. He was trying to grow a team here in Mexico, in Guadalajara, uh, but he was having trouble sending money overseas. Uh, we partnered together to create a business here in Mexico that employs all of our employees on both of our businesses uh, makes it a lot easier to manage. And one of our partners that is Mexican that's running this business for us, uh, you know, they're, they're Mexican. They speak the language. Uh, we found the right lawyers to help partner with them to, to understand the legal challenges that we were facing and an accountant to actually administer the payments and payrolls that we were paying to you know, our employees. So again, it's having that right support system in the country that's huge. Obviously, having another American uh, pursuing the idea with with us was great because we could bounce ideas off of us, you know, figure out what the obstacles were, what the challenges were, what we weren't thinking of yet. Um, and then having the right partner in the country that you plan on launching is also incredibly valuable because it helps you navigate a lot more of those legal uh, and fiscal challenges that you're going to run into in you know, whatever target country you want to open your operations in. Yeah. And you mentioned like sending money offshore with a challenge. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned yeah. sending it to Mexico. But if you live in Mexico, why is that a challenge to send money to people in Mexico? Are you still using American banking systems for your business? Well, it's actually a lot more convenient now. We use, uh, so we have this business in Mexico. They have a Mexican bank account and we actually just use Stripe to send money. Uh, so the business in Mexico has a Stripe account. You know, they just hit, we just hit our credit card uh, twice a month for the payroll. And yeah, it makes the operational uh, aspects of sending money way more simple um otherwise you know like using a platform like paypal you're paying pretty high fees um you know it's a pain to send a lot of payments over time to a lot of different people transfer wise it's a similar obstacle the fees aren't as bad as paypal we got kicked off of one called remitly uh which was for remittances to mexico and the amount of money we were sending i guess was too much for that platform um, so yeah, I mean, simplifying things with credit card and Stripe made it way easier to make, to meet our, uh, payroll events. Gotcha. Yeah. And you don't want to have payroll problems because your employees yeah. don't like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the biggest thing. If you can't pay your employees, you know, they're not going to be happy. The quality of the work, they're not going to be, they're not going to be doing, isn't going to be as great. Yeah. And it's only going to cause problems for your business. 
So let's get into the e-commerce piece. Um, we've covered the nearshoring, and uh, I want to transition, I think, into the bulk or the meat and potatoes of what we'll talk about today, um, selling on Amazon. And I think some of the stuff we'll learn from this conversation can probably be translated to selling on other platforms. Um, but we'll kind of focus on Amazon because that's your primary focus as well. But where do you think most brands or people fail when it comes to selling on Amazon? I think, well, prior to this year, maybe things have changed a little bit now. A lot of people didn't see the point in selling on Amazon if they had good retail sales. If they you know, were selling to Walmart, if they were selling to Target, if they were selling to other you know, small retailers, maybe they didn't see the, the necessity to be on the Amazon platform. Now, I think it's a lot more obvious with how many stores have been shut down, how many you know, lockdowns there's been. Uh, and a lot of companies are, are really being hurt by that. Now the problem is they're paying more attention to the platform, but what are they not focusing on the most? And it really comes down to what the presence is like on the platform. A lot of times you'll see brands that um, aren't really controlling their listings. There's a lot of other retailers or resellers out there that are selling their product on Amazon. So they're not controlling the, the quality of the images, the, the sales copy on the product page. There's not consistent advertising. So that's creating a lot of issues with actually getting the sales. Um, really when you think of it, when you think of any e-commerce platform, even if it's your own website, you need to think of it in a funnel perspective. Like how am I going to get the most customers to my, uh, to purchase my product? And, you know, you have the bottom of the funnel, which is where people find your product, which is the SEO aspects of Amazon and the advertising aspects of Amazon. And, you know, they actually want to purchase the product. So it has good social proof. So there's a lot of different aspects that go in there. If the middle of the funnel where you need to get people to consider your brand against other brands that are on the platform or other products that are on the platform, then you have the top of the funnel, which is the brand awareness. And that's, you know, how do you get your brand out there? How do you, how do you solve, or how do you let other people know that you're going to be solving a problem for them with your product? And no one really thinks like that when they're, they're approaching any e-commerce platform, if they don't have experience in, in e-commerce before. And I think that's where most companies fail is that they're not looking at the bigger picture. They're just looking at, all right, like my product's up here. Like, why am I not getting sales? <laughs> and it's not that simple. Okay. So how do they, what do they do next? Right. If they address the problem, they realize they're not looking at the bigger picture. No. Um, what do they do now? Well, uh, this is where our company comes in handy for a lot of these brands, you know, and companies like mine, a lot of people will, will reach out, look for that strategy, look to get the fundamentals of the platform done. Uh, primarily the first starting point you're going to have is what's, what do you, what do your product listings look like on Amazon? And that's where you need to create good sales copy. So you want to take advantage of the product titles of the bullet points of the product description. You want to make sure that you have the right keywords in there. They're in the right places. All of that's going to help you index for keywords on Amazon. It's, it's like Google SEO. If you're trying to rank for a certain keyword, you need to make sure you have that keyword in whatever piece of content or whatever website you're trying to promote. Same goes for Amazon, although the ranking aspects are a little bit different. You need to have good sales and SEO copy on your product listings. That's the primary starting point and where most companies don't know what they're doing because they're not doing the right keyword research. Uh, they're not understanding things in that aspect. And beyond that, you also have your product photos. So, you know, how do I make my product look good? If we're thinking about it from a mobile perspective, you know, more and more shoppers are going to mobile. And outside of the U.S., most shoppers use mobile prime, uh, versus desktop when they're actually purchasing products. 
And if you've ever used the Amazon app on your phone, you know that product images are what show up first. So we make sure, you got to make sure you're taking advantage of those product images to convey what benefits your product has, how it makes their life better, uh, and just make the product look good. Um, obviously, lifestyle helps there. Calling out product features is also very important. Uh, that will really help convert the customer more when they come to the page. And then social proof, how do I get more product reviews? How do I get more people to uh, rev- you know, give more of their experiences with my product so other potential shoppers can see this experience and see how the product uh, works for them or how it can benefit them, uh, from you know, not just from us as the seller, but from someone else that's already bought the product. That's the primary start, uh, starting point for the Amazon platform. And then from there, there's a lot of other aspects you can do, like advertising, marketing, promotions, that can really help you grow your sales from there. Okay. And why do you think it's important to use SBON F I'm sorry, Amazon FBA, the ful- fulfillment by Amazon um, when selling on Amazon, I guess, as opposed to fulfilling your own orders. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good point. And I'll explain the difference between the two uh, fulfillment by Amazon means that you're essentially sending inventory to a warehouse. So this is great because you don't actually have to have your own warehouse. You don't have to have boxes stuffed in your garage. Amazon will handle all the inventory for you. So you'll send the inventory to Amazon. And then every time you get an order, the product goes out to the end customer. Alternatively, you can have your own warehouse or you can stuff your own garage with boxes of your own product if you want to send it that way. But that essentially means every time you get an order, you're going to have to fulfill it yourself, package it, bring it to the you know UPS store, drop it in the box, whatever it is. Uh, so it just creates more work for you. But when it comes to the platform itself, FBA uh, or fulfillment by Amazon helps you rank higher on product detail, uh, product search pages uh, because, well, this probably isn't the way it should work, but Amazon actually favors products that are FBA on the platform. If you notice, it has the little, the little prime badge. If it has a prime badge, that means it's FBA or Amazon selling it themselves, which is essentially the same thing. Uh, and yeah, the product gets there in you know, one day shipping now, two day shipping in a lot of other places has a lot more benefits for the end customer. You know, customers want convenience. They want to be able to get their product quickly and uh, being, uh, in FBA, having that prime badge, letting customers know that the products can get there quickly is a huge selling point on the platform as well. I guess that makes sense because yeah, I mean, they're, they're favoring themselves, but I think that they know that they are more accountable. <laughs> than the average person who's going to fulfill their own order. So I can see why it ranks higher because it's like if if it's sitting in an Amazon warehouse, it's most likely going to get to the end user in one to two days. But if it sits in my house and I don't check my email for two days, (laughs) then I'm not going to see your order. And then I fulfill it and you get it in three to five or six to seven days, you know? Exactly. I mean, Amazon's main focus is to create a good customer experience. And, you know, obviously getting your product on time is a huge part of that customer experience. You're less likely to come back if you run into delays or you have issues with shipping or whatever it may be. If you purchased a product from Amazon before or any platform before and experienced that, you've probably gone to another platform to see where you can buy the product differently or get it faster or get it delivered a different way. Why does a brand need to spend money on advertising? Uh, if they are already SEO optimized, like if they've done all the keywords and stuff like that, why do you suggest that they need to spend a little bit more money on reaching people? Yeah, this is probably the question we get most from our clients is why do I need to advertise if I'm on the Amazon platform? And what it comes to is something that's known as the Amazon flywheel, or you know, a lot of people call it a flywheel in the Amazon space. 
So essentially having the SEO and having the images and having the uh, reviews are all important, but that's not going to give you the most visibility on the platform because everybody else on the platform is advertising their products as well. I mean, if you're in certain niches, the SEO alone might lead to pretty good sales for you. But if you really want to get the flywheel going where you know you get more sales, you move higher up in the ranking, you get more sales, you move higher up in the ranking, every space that you move up higher or every page that you can get to that's higher is going to lead to more sales for your product. So being on page one is extremely important. And the way to get to page one is by generating the most sales or having the highest sales velocity in the shortest amount of time. And advertising is the best way to do that. If you're launching a product and you start advertising, you start generating sales that way, you're showing Amazon and the Amazon ranking algorithm that, hey, I'm getting this amount of sales in this amount of time. You know, My product is in demand for whatever the keyword is that a customer found it from or whatever your ad was placed on. And it's gonna move you, it's gonna show Amazon that you're more relevant for that search term or whatever the customer search. So you're gonna move up higher in the search results. The more advertising, you can do, the more your product's going to move up in the search results, the more it's going to get to page one. But again, you're not the only one doing this. You're not the only one that recognizes this. All your competition does as well. So essentially by not advertising on the platform, you're limiting your ability to move to page one and you're probably decreasing the likelihood that you're going to be able to compete with your competitors on the platform. Okay. That's fair. What about, you know, what if a company's small or a person's got a small budget, they've spent all their money on creating the product. What would you say is too low of a budget? It's, it's really tough. It really depends on the category and it depends on what your goals are. I mean, sure, you can do advertising just to get sales on the platform, not trying to get to page one. That will generate revenue for you. That will get you more sales of your product. It'll help you turn your inventory quicker. Um, but typically we recommend, uh, if you're really trying to grow a brand, if you're trying to grow quickly on the platform, you need to be spending probably between 5,000 or more a month. Uh, we typically rec- our cl- recommend our clients start at least that point to really get their products going. Um, but obviously the more you can spend, the more you can start testing different things on the advertising side, see what's working for your products and your brand and figure out what, what's not working. And then you just you know, reinvest your ad, bu- your ad budget into what is working. Um, so, you know, the more money you have, the, sh- the shorter that learning curve is going to be and the faster you're going to start growing your brand and platform. So you mentioned 5k or more a month, which of course we all know that, well, just sort of creativity and some strategy, like the more money, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what if I had $300, would you say, Jared, you could use that somewhere else? Or would you say, no, 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 I'll use that on Amazon. It's still better than nothing. I would say, well, I would say on Amazon, if you spend that $300, you're still going to get a return on it. You're still going to get sales. Um, you know, If you're just trying to make a little money, you probably will. Your margin will be lower because you're spending on the ads as well. But I think there's a lot of things that you could do off the Amazon platform that could also be very valuable for your brand if you know who your customer is, if you know where to find them. Uh, for example, one platform that's particularly good is Pinterest. The And as a comparison... The cost per clicks on Pinterest are very low. They can be 25 cents or lower per click. That same click on Amazon in certain categories, for example, like um, health supplements, that product, that cost per click can be $10 or more. So if you're spending 25 cents versus $10 per click, you can get a much better return on 25 cents and get a lot more people to your page by using other advertising platforms. Another uh, 
I mean, Google ads is another example of that, but other strategies you could use are typical SEO strategies, like building more links to your product. So can you get onto some of the top search results on Google for, you know, whatever this product may be or whatever the comparison list is or whatever the product review list is and get traffic to your product on Amazon through that link that you build off platform. So that's another great off platform strategy to really get there. And I mean, I know we, we were kind of talking about it before you're, you're launching your book, you know, the more reach you can get through the content marketing aspects, the more links you can get out there, the more you can get your name out there, the more people are going to come to the Amazon platform and search for your product or just come directly through a link. So, you know, that is a lower cost way on the content marketing side that you can grow on the Amazon platform, but it does take a little bit more time to get the results that you need unless you have a solid process in place to generate the links or to generate the content to get people to the page. Got it. And so you, of course, you still, now you have AMZ Advisors, which has been around for a couple of years. Do you still, um, are you still an Amazon seller as well? Yes. Well, right now we have a couple different products that are in development that we're working with. Uh, we just partnered with a new brand called Greendrop. Their products are going to be launching on the Amazon platform next month. Uh, we also, And then I have on the side another project that we're working on, uh, which is for uh, a food product that's going to go onto the Amazon platform. And I also help my girlfriend with a few projects she's working on, uh, launching a women's apparel brand on the Amazon platform. So, yeah, I mean, there's so much opportunity to sell on Amazon I love it. <laughs> I love selling products. It's awesome. Like getting the notifications on your phone, like, Oh sweet. Like just sold three more. Yeah. Uh, it's great. It, and it, it's, it's just kind of passive in the background. It's yeah. continually going. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't think I'll ever stop selling in e-commerce to be honest. That's awesome. And the barrier to entry these days is so low compared to starting a business five, 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, so it's transitioned there. Like old school business would have been retail, right? Like if you're, girlfriend had a aspiration or ambition to have a women's clothing brand um, five, 10 years ago, she'd be looking for real estate and she'd be looking for prime real estate right now. Yeah. Um, and she'd be spending five, 10 grand on a sign for the building. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and having to do construction and get permits pulled and order everything and store it. And, you know, like, um, which people are still doing because there's a place for that, right? Like Lululemon yeah. would not be the same if it was only on Amazon. But what do you think about the future of retail? Broad question, but we'll narrow it down. It's a very broad question. Um, I, I can talk a little bit about the view I saw from it from my days at Sears. Because, uh, I mean, it's already happened and it's been happening. Uh, you know, as Sears as a company was struggling to get the foot traffic into their stores, and they were paying a lot of high rents uh, and a lot of inventory costs just to hold so much inventory in these stores that people weren't coming to. So, I mean, if we're looking back at the perspective from five years ago, we saw that a lot of these uh, big box stores were in trouble. And my job at Sears was actually to figure out, uh, and we also own Kmart, was to figure out how do we turn these big box stores into new developments that are going to bring more people in that we can sub rent or sublease to other brands, uh, um, you know, other companies, whatever it may be. Uh, and yeah, we worked on a lot of awesome product, product products, excuse me, to literally tear down a store, rebuild an outdoor shopping area with 10 other stores or, you know, a lot of other places or uh, building apartment buildings at a mall, which is kind of crazy concept. But uh, yeah, I mean, 
there was a lot changing in the retail side, but the main pro- thing we were seeing is that foot traffic was falling. The, the demand for a big box store wasn't there anymore and smaller store spaces were what was in demand. So, you know, a lot of our focus was on there. Yeah. Flash forward to today, uh, obviously coronavirus <laughs> and COVID has created a lot of issues for sellers, uh, for brands that were in the malls, whether they even had a small store. Uh, so a lot of malls are being repurposed for other uses. So we've actually seen uh, companies like FedEx, Amazon, UPS, they've actually been buying malls to use for warehouses to actually store products and actually fulfill products that way. So that's another changing use for the retail side. But I mean, when it comes to the small store footprint, I think there will always be demand for that in some aspect. I, I think, you know, if we think more of... Um, you know, I'm from Connecticut. I know a lot of, we have a lot of areas that are, you know, little town centers with a lot of different stores in there, a lot of local stuff. You know, I think there's always going to be demand for that. You know, people are still going to want to go out. They're not going to want to be at home all the time. They want to see their neighbors. They want to meet other people, you know, grab a coffee, go shopping. Those spaces I think will always exist. Um, and once, you know, COVID goes away, I think the foot traffic will come back to them. But I think the demand for big mall spaces is probably going to decline a lot more. And like I said, we were previously seeing the repurposing of those spaces, and now we're seeing it as warehouse space. But a lot of people have also talked about the malls becoming almost a lifestyle center where you you have your apartment there, you have a grocery store there, you have shops there, you have your office building, medical space. Um, You know, these, a mall is a massive piece of land. We're talking, you know, 40, 50 acres sometimes. So there's a lot of re uh, there's a lot of land that needs to be reused to make those malls, um, I guess, more productive <laughs> or more useful nowadays. And I think getting more creative with the uses for them is going to have to continue to occur, or you know, they're just going to sit vacant, or they're going to you know be bought up for warehouse space and other uses. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's like majority of malls we know will either end up being a logistics, you know, a storage place for Amazon, uh, or an open social setting style niche store mall type of vibe with food trucks and dog parks and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's crazy to think about like you could one, one day be walking in your local, you know, Macy's or whatever, and and maybe that'll be your apartment one day. Who knows? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Um, I want to pivot to some of the leadership questions and then I've got a couple sort of one-off questions I like to ask everybody before I close out the, the, the show. Yeah. Um, You've got 16 employees now, right? Uh, Here in Mexico, we actually have more uh, in total. We have about 30 in total. Wow. Are they all full-time or some of them part-time or how does that work? Uh, One or two are part-time. Everybody else is full-time. So, okay. Do they all work remote or do the majority of them work at, out of Mexico at this office you're in? So in Mexico, we have a uh, 14-person office space, which I'm currently sitting in, and I am the only one here. Being <laughs> Thank you to COVID. Um, that's here in Guadalajara. We have a few that are remote in Monterrey. We have a few that are remote in uh, Playa del Carmen, uh, Mexico City, so a bunch of different places here. In the U.S., we have a few employees that work remote. We have a, a co-working space in Connecticut, uh, which is pretty much our only office space in the U.S. And then we have employees in Asia and in Europe as well. Okay. In your opinion, what makes a good leader? Ooh, that is uh, that's a very tough question because there's a lot of different ways you can approach that. I think 
I think I have a, a unique perspective on it from seeing it from the Sears side. So when I was at Sears, I realized that, you know, my job really wasn't that secure. And I think that's what a lot of people ha- uh, feel when they're in corporate jobs that, you know, I'm working for a good company. I'm working for something that's stable, something that's going to give me security. And the reality is, I mean, any company can go bankrupt at any time. Any bad decision can lead to you losing your job, even if it's not your decision, it was somebody else's. So I think one of the important things that leaders need to do is be able to provide that security. They need to be on the front lines. They need to be the ones that are taking the abuse from the client or whatever it may be uh, to help protect their employees from feeling those feelings. You know, if if your employee is concerned that they're in a job that isn't stable or that's high risk or they don't know what's going to happen or they're, they're insecure about it, they're going to, their productivity is going to drop. They're probably going to leave your company. It's going to create a lot of other issues for you. So creating that sense of security, creating that sense of progress that everything's still moving forward, that, you know, they don't have anything to worry about is probably one of the most important things to me when I think of being a leader. And additionally, in your opinion, what do you think contributes the most to business success? And what I mean by that, I'll give you an example. Um, some would say market timing. Others might say leadership or culture or market conditions. The product is king. So yeah. in your opinion, like if you were to choose one of those things, what do you think contributes the most to business success? I, oh man, that's tough too. Um, I think your product is probably one of the most important things. Uh, not just having you know, right product market fit, but having a good product, you can have something that is in demand, but if your product is crap, your business isn't going to grow. So from my perspective, you need to make sure that you have a good product, whether it's a physical product or a service, you need to make sure that, you know, you're doing a good job of delivering it to your clients. You're making sure your clients uh, needs are answered through your service. You need to have clear communication with them. All of that's going to create a better product. It's going to, if there is a product market fit, you know, you'll see that product demand there. You'll see the sales coming in. You'll see the, the, you know, the leads coming in. And then, you know, just making sure that you maintain a good product is going to lead to the most business growth over time. As soon as that product starts to tail off or it isn't as good, customers are going to go somewhere else and look for something that might be better for them. I like that. Um, especially coming from uh, the Amazon guy. Yeah. Of course. No, it's product. huge. If, if you yeah. don't have a good product, especially on the Amazon platform, platform. If you have a crap product, you're going to get reviews that are going to say that your product is crap and then no one's going to buy your product. So if you don't make sure it's good from the start, then you have a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, are you a reader? Do you read books? You book reader? I do. Yes. What would you say are three of the best books that you could give or gift to anyone? And they don't necessarily have to be around e-commerce, just, um, just maybe three of your favorite books. Oh man, um, that's also a very difficult question. Uh, these are good, good questions. I like them. <laughs> um, one of my favorite books uh, is Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Uh, not so much that it has really anything to do with business. It's more about uh, you know trusting and believing in yourself, knowing that what you're doing is the right thing, not letting other people uh, doubts and concerns kind of get into your head. I think that was a huge one for me. I really enjoy that. Uh, Persuasion is another great book, uh, especially if you're in a service industry, you're doing the marketing aspects or the sales aspects of it. 
understanding how human psychology relates to the actual sales process or the marketing process, I think is super valuable. Um, and the third book, ooh, what would I say for the third book? What have I read recently? Uh, I mean, similar, similar kind of in between that Anne Rand one uh, and uh, the Persuasion book. I think another great book is um, The War on Art by Stephen Pressfield, I think is his name. Uh, again, it's a similar concept that you need to put in the work, you need to put in the effort, you need to believe in yourself. You can't let other people's doubts or outside opinions that don't understand the product, understand the process, understand what you're trying to achieve, hold you back. And you need to keep putting in that effort, even in the face of obstacles. If something comes up your way, I brought up another good book. If something comes in your way, you need to keep going through it, which we'll, I'm just going to mention another book. Obstacle is the way by Ryan holiday. That is another great book. I really love that. Um, so yeah, this, that one. yeah, I'm, uh, it's just the kind of like the mentality I, I love approaching stuff with like, all right, here's my challenge. How am I going to solve it? So yeah. 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 Stoicism is making a strong resurgence in, uh, <laughs> in the marketplace, which I don't mind necessarily. Um, two more, man. And then I'm going to let you go. One is, uh, and I'm really interested in this one. What's the best purchase you've made for under a hundred dollars in the past six months? Could have been a gift. It could have been for yourself. Wow. Uh, I don't know about all the deals too. I mean, you're the Amazon guy. So yeah, <laughs> I will say that one very great purchase has been, uh, well, I mean, I'm working in my office now, but when I was working at home, uh, a robot vacuum, uh, that has saved me a lot of time from actually sweeping my floors, vacuuming my floors, uh, the one we have even does like a little washing. So it makes it a lot easier to keep my apartment clean. Which uh, one would you recommend? Is it the Roomba or is there others? The Roomba is the one I have. I don't remember the model name, but I have a Roomba and that that is probably the best purchase I made. I think it was over a hundred. I think it was like 150. But I mean, when I talk, when I'm talking about time saved and productivity, it's been absolutely massive for me. I love it. I appreciate it. And I was talking about a Roomba this morning with somebody else. So I think I might be almost there. I think um, you need one. <laughs> last one, I man. If you could put, and I got this from Tim Ferriss, so I got to credit him each time. But if you could put anything you want on a big blank billboard on the busiest intersection you can imagine, what would it say? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> there, there's a couple different ones I could, I could really point to, a couple quotes that I really enjoy. Uh, the one I'm going to go with, though, is from uh, Richard Branson, or at least. I've heard it from Richard Branson. I think he got it from someone else. Uh, and it's the harder I work, the luckier I get. And I believe, you know, putting in the effort, being prepared, having a good product, you know, making sure your service is well, whatever it may be, putting in that extra time, that extra effort, working hard, that's going to lead to more success down the road. And a lot of it is luck. I mean, for us, like as an Amazon agency, what could have, what could have been better for more sales going online? I mean, obviously there's a lot of negatives of what's happening, right. but you know, we worked hard to have a product and now this year hit and our demand for our products has skyrocketed. And it's just luck. Like no one could have seen this coming. Yeah. But the harder you work, the more you pre prepared you are, the more ready you are, you know, the better success you're going to have once that luck actually comes. So the harder you work, the luckier you get. Yep. That's, I love it. That's what I believe. Mike, thanks for being on the show. I've learned a ton personally. I'm excited to go back to the drawing board and selling the self-help journal. Maybe I'll uh, get that on the first page here soon. Um, 
And I hope the same thing for our audience, man. I, I imagine they learned a ton about e-commerce, the state of retail and, and everything else that we talked about. So I really appreciate your time today and taking the time to uh, instill your everything you've learned and your wisdom with myself and my audience. Um, how can people find out more about you uh, or AMZ Advisors? Sure, of course. Well, first of all, I want to thank you as well. It's been great uh, being on the podcast. You've asked some really great questions, so I really enjoy that. But if the listeners want to learn more about myself or my business, they can obviously find us at our website, amzadvisors.com. Uh, if they're looking to get started on the Amazon platform and you know just learn more of the basics and more of the strategies that we use with our clients as well, they can check out amzcourses.com. Or if they ever just want to get in touch, they can email me directly. My email is mike at amzadvisors.com. And you know, any questions, any doubts you have, I'm always glad to help. So. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you, Jared. I appreciate it.